to Aim for Truth, the home of the Anonymous Patriots. Today, we're going to be discussing liberty and conscience versus institutional left with John Barnwell, one of our regular guests. It's a big question, and it's one that always gets me upset because the second you say left and right, I never really know what that means. I haven't really defined that in my own mind. But now we see the extreme left and the extreme right. And so it comes into clear focus. So we've asked John if he would help us today understand that a bit more thoroughly in a historical and cultural perspective. Well, um, I thought about the themes that we could cover. And uh, one of them I came up with is liberty and conscience versus the institutional left. But in order to be able to approach a subject like that, you have to define uh, what you mean. And everybody these days is running so fast and loose with terminology that it's virtually impossible to be able to frame things properly. Uh, and so consequently, uh, we almost need to develop a new uh, terminology. And I think that basically what we have going is the conflict between uh, authoritarian uh, schools of thought, which would include uh, communism, socialism, fascism, anything that has a centralized focus. In opposite to that, we have what people tend to call libertarian. Of course, the extreme would be anarchy, but that's not a government, that's a non-government. But uh, I think of it, I think of the American Constitution as being fundamentally, uh, by its own nature, an attempt, the first solid attempt at libertarianism, uh, because within that, what I consider a sacred document, they create a context whereby the individual uh, can be seen as sovereign uh, to the extent that the sovereign is sovereign in another land when they are a king, so that in America, all men and women are kings and queens. Uh, and the basis of this is the liberty that we have and the purpose of government, centralized government, wasn't meant to be authoritarian and tell us what to do. It was meant to be uh, something to protect those liberties. And so when you get into the, the left and right and the way people describe it, they generally say, well, the left relates to on the extreme communism, not as extreme socialism, and on the right, they uh, make the reference to fascism. And of course, that's entirely inaccurate. And, and people have been using that really ever since uh, the terms first came up, because any uh, astute student of history would know that the, the uh, Nazis, who were the fascists in Germany, was a National Socialist Party, and uh, that down in, in Italy, Mussolini was uh, quite celebrated as a socialist. So that kind of blows that out the window, but so that what you have is you have uh, different distinctions of what one would call oligarchy, which is to be ruled by a few. 
Now, some oligarchic systems tend to focus uh, all of uh, the resources and workforce under the control of a centralized government. That was the Soviet system, and that worked terribly. And then you have the corporate oligarchy, which is what was attempted in Germany and in Italy. That's where really uh, corporate elites uh, are above the government, so to speak. And uh, of course that system uh, leaves so much to be desired. It's, it's really uh, a, a synarchy and uh, it's just not workable uh, to give a basis for human freedom and development of imagination, conscience, and creativity. Well, that's an excellent perspective. Now, in the simple mind of myself, I think of liberals as being Democrats and conservatives as being Republicans. But if you look back to, say, the way that it used to be in the South during the Reconstruction time, Blacks, African-Americans, were in fact Republican and not Democratic. And so when you think of Democrats and the liberal left policies of always, you know, social, in, uh, social uh, uh, services, social interest, trying to help people of all sorts, you know, uh, no borders, let everyone come in, all these kind of concepts are, are almost a type of, um, really, it's a type of communism in a, in, in a sense. But as you pointed out, communism doesn't work. So it seems as though we have forgotten our own roots here in America. And when we talk about extreme left, like with Antifa now, for the sake of humanitarian purposes, they go out and aggressively and violently attack people and are rioting on the street and now have been considered a domestic terrorist. And in fact, they should be because people have died. The same thing with Black Lives Matter. So the extreme left oftentimes is associated with socialism. And Bernie Sanders, I think, probably read the director of national intelligence's five-year report, which was gleaned through the work of 17 agencies. And you can get this anywhere. It's called um, The Global Trends, Paradox of Progress. It was produced in January of 2017. And in this document, it literally tells the president what to do for the next five years. It actually defines who the president will be and what uh, basic, basic political leanings you'd have to have to appeal to what is really happening in America. And they state in this document that liberals rule America. And in fact, liberals and globalism are practically synonymous terms in this document. And they go into quite a bit of description of what would need to happen if someone was going to win the election against the liberals. And they said that the liberals would need to go so liberal that they would need to literally become a socialist party in America. And basically that's what happened with Bernie Sanders. And you got to see Hillary Clinton go extremely to the left. But then it described what the right would have to do. And it said that populism and nationalism, if it was used properly with identity politics, would be able to create a resistance to liberalism that in fact rules American politics and rules basically global politics. So it's a bit shocking when you read this that they make all these assumptions, but you can really understand that the advice that was given in this document 
was probably taken by Bernie Sanders, was probably taken by Hillary Clinton, and it wouldn't surprise me if someone brought it to Donald Trump's attention. So what I'm saying is, it seems as if the 17 intelligence agencies, John, believe that we live in a liberal democracy that is leaning towards socialism. As a matter of fact, it needs to go fully into socialism. I'd like to ask you this question. Is there a socialist country that is truly socialist that has been a success? Well, that's a difficult question because uh, the example that so many liberals would give is the uh, example of Sweden. And of course, they're among the countries that are currently doing the worst right now because of their liberal policies and and the uh, tremendous influx of uh refugees, migrants, what have you, into their country has created quite a bit of chaos. Uh, so much so that they've uh, made moves to create laws against complaining against uh, the behavior of all of these people coming in uh, under the system of uh, a world without borders, which is uh, really a world without nations because what defines a nation but its border. But the, the Swedes for a long time got along quite well because uh, they've really had a kind of a, a socialist framework going all the way back into the Viking ages when they would get in the great halls all together and they would divide up the booty that they captured from the lands that they raided and they were very communalistic in the way in which they dealt with uh, their national commerce uh, leading up to the modern era. So that gave them kind of a social uh, framework that uh, can work better in countries where you have a uh, what you might call a, a homogeneous populace where they're all uh, of the same background and have much in common. Uh, but other than that, I mean, you can look at the abject failures of, say, North Korea or uh, Venezuela, uh, the chaos that's started up now in Brazil uh, due to them attempting to implement these globalist slash socialist principles. Uh, and it's a keep it in mind, as I said in our, uh, the previous video, is that uh, Venezuela was the second most uh, functioning economy in South America, uh, next to Argentina. And uh, there was quite a bit of prosperity. And then uh, Hugo Chavez came in and they settled into an authoritarian socialist system. And even though they have tremendous resources, in uh, oil to be able to finance uh, this great project of theirs. Uh, nonetheless, it's just totally collapsed and people are again starving and, and eating any animal that they happen to find, whether it's from the zoo or somebody's pet. So it, no, I don't, I don't really know any truly successful uh, socialist style systems. I mean, in Britain, you do have uh, the tendency so that 
really even the conservatives in in uh, Britain in the UK uh, in the US they would be considered to be to the left so they're 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 meant to uh, uh, accept authoritarian leadership because of their the background that they have in being beneath uh, the king and the nobility and all of that. So they were already uh, prepared to think in terms of a collect of a collective. Uh, whereas in the U.S., uh, that's not what we have going on here, obviously. And as I have said before, there's two types of people. There's people that want to be left alone, and then there's people that want to tell other people what to do. It's shocking to me that people wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders, seeing that George Soros was his um, largest contributor to his campaign. You would think that anyone listening to Bernie Sanders and his socialist ideas would say those can't work. And if they looked at his own behavior, especially in the lawsuit that he's involved with, with his wife and his child right now, it shows you that Bernie is not all that he is made out to be. And isn't that really what socialism does? It puts a few people in charge of the big group and then those people become socialist oligarchs and then they become tyrants. I mean, I don't know of a successful socialist experiment. And I don't think America is the place to try that experiment. So when we talk about the institutional left, it's rather frightening to think that the left condones the violence and aggression that the far left is taking at this point. It's taken a long time for people to stand up and say that both sides in Charlottesville were armed. So why would you think one side was correct and the other one wasn't? Uh, because someone died, well, people die on both sides, and this is a war, unfortunately. There's a civil war going on, a Soros color revolution right here in America, just like in Ukraine and just like in so many other countries that, that this has been uh, created so that we can, in fact, go into chaos, so we can go into, basically, the dream of socialism, which quickly becomes a form of tyrannical communism, and leaves liberty and conscience behind. Matter of fact, we see that Antifa wants to stop free speech. So the only free speech allowed, according to them, is their own free speech or their own, I guess, assumed right to go out and riot and create violence and harm and aggression and uh, property damage and everything else imaginable. So it does seem to be exactly as you say. It's an issue of liberty and conscience versus institutional left. I don't think the institutional left is winning at this moment because Hillary Clinton did not get into the White House. And I do believe liberty, one of Trump's main themes, and conscience is an issue here because when we're talking about the morality of the swamp or what really happens in D.C. or the type of career politicians that certainly do not have a conscience, we can see that there's a huge battle on both sides. So we can see that left and right becoming extreme and we can see that the middle ground is not inhabited by many anymore because of the polarization that's happened. Can you say, do you, do you believe um, that we are literally at the crux of a civil war in America between the left and right, John? Well, yeah, I think actually what we're in the middle of is a, a digital civil war. That uh, it's it's a war of of information like, you know, 
like Alex Jones' famous show, The Infowars, that, that we're in the thick of it. And people that think that they could just like go uh, and cast their vote and they're that and now they can sit back and and that uh the wheels of government are going to run smoothly uh they have uh, a big surprise in store for them see the 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 situation as it stands with the institutional left i've i've covered some of that in uh, uh previous videos uh really if you want to get a handle on the the basis of the institutional left, we we owe a, a great uh, vote of thanks to G. Edward Griffin. Uh, he did an interview with a gentleman named Norman Dodd on non-governmental organizations and collectivism. It has to do with the foundations, which is really the institutional left has its uh, strongest foundation in these institutions, these charitable so-called institutions, and in the think tanks that uh, tend to cluster around these institutions. And uh, Norman Dodd was a researcher who uh, exposed the uh, social engineering agenda uh, to bring America into a collectivism that was being brought about through these large tax foundations or N NGOs. Uh, he was the uh, researcher for the what is sometimes called the Reese Committee or at other times the, the Cox Committee. But uh, really what it was is a select committee to investigate tax-exempt foundations and comparable organizations. And it was an investigation uh, that was uh, centered around the, the House of Representatives between 1952 and 1954. And uh, it was created under uh, House Regulation 561 during the 82nd Congress. And so anybody can look these things up and you can find uh, quite a bit of detail, even though uh, because of the way the internet is situated within the a basket of uh, the institutional left, you could still research these things so far. They haven't suppressed the internet. But uh, the final report, it's called the Dodd Report, was submitted by Norman Dodd. And uh, it became controversial immediately because uh, it was just uh, a real eye-opener. He had selected a woman who didn't believe the allegations that he had, and he went to one of the uh, major foundations, and he asked if he could uh, gain access to investigate their records, and the people working there, uh, who really didn't have a handle on it, I don't think, they said, well, we'll let you have access to the minutes of our meetings for two weeks. And so he took a woman who didn't believe in what he was accusing the foundations of. She was ideal. She was a brilliant lawyer. And he sent her in there. But rather than go through these handwritten minutes books going all the way back to the early parts of the 20th century uh, and all written in hand, longhand, uh, he gave her target time frames when he knew significant things had happened and had her research in there. And she was so shattered from the experience uh, of what she discovered that they were planning on creating uh, 
a collectivist uh, state, super state, merging with the, the Russians and creating this global super state. And she was so distraught that she quit her career and she ended up becoming unglued uh, and developing tremendous uh, psychiatric problems. So this is a this is a very troubling thing, and uh, if you follow this through, and if you want to dig even further, you can you can dig into the work of uh, John Taylor Gatto, and uh, also uh, uh, look into his. Uh, he did a, a nice video on the themes of the elite private school curriculum that tells you the type of education that the elites who uh, are planning on being above this whole collective situation. And uh, there's also uh, the uh, material that was put together by a very, very uh, remarkable woman, Charlotte Thompson Iserbeet. And she wrote uh, the book, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. And she was, during Reagan, uh, highly placed within uh, the Department of Education, and she was able to uncover a tremendous number of documentation for this whole uh, program of social engineering that had been uh, financed and, and organized through the institutional left of the non-government organizations to try and educate the young so that they have the mental framework that is compatible with this type of social engineering. This education, of course, you can trace the history back further, all the way back to the Prussian education system, which was so lauded because it was so effective at, at, at see, up until the Prussian education system, when, when some king wanted to go to war, he'd go with his army and half the people would just run away. They didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, but through the Prussian education system, they found that they could, uh, they could train these uh, subjects in such a way so that they would follow orders. And so the Prussian soldiers were very disciplined. Uh, we had Prussian soldiers that were mercenaries in, uh, in the uh, uh, army of uh, the colonies here. Uh, a lot of... Uh, armies around the world would, would hire these Prussian soldiers as, as mercenaries because they were like mechanical soldiers. They would just go in and, and fight and they wouldn't run away. And so that's what they want. They want people that uh, follow orders, that go along. And the, the problem with this modality is it suppresses creativity. And that's why when you see uh, the creativity that, the, that has come upon the world, the greatest amount of it has come about through uh, the United States and the liberties and the permissions and free speaking and, and, and all of that creates a, a creative environment where one can, through uh, a system of uh, clarifying one's errors, can come to a measure of truth that's unobtainable within this regimented uh, form of uh, thinking. This mechanical uh, disciplined thinking is not conducive towards creative impulses. I just want to underscore what you said about the NGOs and their power, because in this document I'm quoting, which is from the 
uh, intelligence agencies, which basically is the document that they give to the president for the next five years to lay out the threats, both social threats, uh, cyber threats, uh, war threats, all types of threats. And in this, they identify exactly what you point out, the power of NGOs. And they also say that these NGOs can be led by individuals, or let's look at the power of one individual, George Soros, and his 184 NGOs that he promotes here in America to the tune of over $400 million a year. He has tremendous identity politics. He, as an individual, is able to be a threat. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read a quote here, one sentence, to show you how serious they think this threat is. This is directly from the document uh, Global Trends, um, Paradox of Progress, from the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, actually, is the one who signed it. They say in this document, nonprofits, multinational corporations, religious groups, and a variety of other organizations now have the ability to amass wealth, influence, and a following, enabling them to address welfare and security in ways that may be more effective than those that political authorities wield. This they consider a threat. So what you're saying, liberty and conscience, even when it's only one individual, can stand up and create more of an effect against the government than anyone can imagine. They are terrified of this happening. And they also say that the control is managed, the control of the country is managed through NGOs because they actually have more fluidity. They can amass money. They can, they can tell lies. They can do whatever they want. They can misrepresent things. They can propagandize even more clearly than the government can to put forth their narrative. So this document is basically saying that they're afraid of populism, they're afraid of nationalism, and to go along with what you've pointed out, they're afraid of liberty, they're afraid of conscience, they're afraid of people really taking a look at reality instead of dreaming that socialism is going to be paid for by someone. We're going to take all the money of the wealthy, and that's going to pay for socialism. That's right, wait, wait. But if we take away all the money of the wealthy, then there would be no corporations and no companies, there'd be no work. And I, there's many, many people who certainly believe that socialism is not an effective system because it has yet to be, prove itself to be effective in any country that I know of. And as you pointed out, there's a few that use a bit of the socialistic tendencies, but they aren't truly socialistic. So what we see here is the military, the U.S. intelligence agencies, are scared to death of exactly what happened. A socialist uh, movement was not able to stop a Trump who was a populist, a nationalist, who stood up for the right, for conservatism, liberty, conscience, all the kind of things that they are terrified of. And it came down to literally one person. And that's what this document is saying. There's wars everywhere. Matter of fact, this document states that we should go to nuclear war in Syria. Well, they don't specifically say Syria, but they describe it in so many exact terms that it's hard not to realize who they're talking about, but they say the Middle East, and they describe it in great detail. So later on in this document, it states that America, so that we can continue to be the supreme institutionalized left, or what they call lib uh, global liberalism, or, the, or social liberalism is another term that they use, and they also use the word that this social liberalism must act in the realm of falsehood politics. I love that. In other words, they realize that lies 
are just as effective as truth, maybe even more effective because they have a bigger shock value. They describe this. So they describe how to propagandize on this. They describe even justify in this document that America should be supporting um, climate change investment of $5 trillion into other countries' ability to not leave a carbon footprint, when in fact they also imply here that those statistics are variable and may not actually be accurate. So if you really want to get a picture on where our government was headed before Donald Trump came on the scene, look up this document and read it. And what you're going to see there is it states pretty clearly that we don't live in a free republic or a democracy here in America anymore. We live in an institutionalized left and that it must be controlled. And there's very, very clear statements here about how to control the populace and the methodology for that. But I was just pointing out some of the threats. So some of the biggest threats to socialism are individuals acting out of their own liberty, out of their own conscience, standing up for what is right. In other words, lawfulness, the rule of law, because in, in my opinion, the extreme left simply forgets the laws. They think that their cause, their humanitarian cause, is greater than the law, and that in their mixed up mind, they believe that they can break the law before the law has been changed and that that's a type of resistance or that that's a good thing. But really what that is, is identity politics. Ask any of those individuals why they're out on the street rioting and you'll probably get different answers from every one of them because this is a personal issue at this point and America has to find their way. And without having a clear historical perspective like the one that you often bring to us as you have today, John, that uh, we can get lost pretty easily thinking that we're fighting for the right because they use all the, the proper words, humanitarian and inclusion and all these beautiful words. But then when you look into the organizations, these non-governmental organizations, these NGOs being supported by identity politics, people like George Soros or the Rockefellers or, uh, as we talked about yesterday, uh, Leonard Blavatnik or other Russian oligarchs, other countries are investing into our own politics to make sure that we lean further and further to the left into globalism. And they do it by exactly what you said. They, they basically give us a little bit of a sense of freedom. They let us vote. They let us think that we're participating in, a, in a, um, an actual political system and that our voice actually means something. And accidentally, it did. Enough of us voted for Trump so that we broke the standard mold and we broke the institutionalized left so that liberty and conscience could come to birth. So, John, I know that you're also a great student of how they psychologically control culture and society and that this is part of a very planned out, long uh, plan, long view of how it is that they break down society so that the individual can then be manipulated more easily so that those on the left can say, oh, 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 I didn't notice that Antifa is killing people. Oh, 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 they said they're not for fascism. I'm not for fascism. Oh, they're using fascist techniques to say that they're not for fascism and see people are asleep. And I say it's because they've been subliminally programmed and they don't, they can't wake up or when they do wake up, they become very angry at what they see. And then that causes all kinds of problems there. So how do we, John, wake up from the sleep of this extreme, extreme left 
liberal institutionalized uh, fake democracy? Well, you know, that's that's quite a challenge. And uh, I think a, a big part of what's happening is is you could and you could see it uh, as it as it's bearing fruit within uh, the movie industry, for example. They had a record terrible year so far. Uh, people are no longer uh, so happy to, to get their entertainment from these conglomerates. Uh, in 1980, there were more than 50 uh, media corporations that were uh, in charge of all the various uh, news outlets and so forth. Now there's five, or if you stretch it a bit, you could say that there, there's six, and that these six corporations are responsible for 90% of the media output in the, in the country. That's, you know, news on TV, uh, newspapers, and and so forth. So with this centralization, it became even more challenging in 2012. Because, see, back in 1948, uh, they, they passed a, a law. It's popularly called the Smith-Munt Act. But it's the U.S. Information and Educational Exchange Act of 1948. Uh, it's public law 80-402. But in that act, what it did was it outlawed utilizing the propaganda techniques that uh, certain intelligence organizations were using overseas. It outlawed using them within the United States. But in, in uh, 2012, uh, this law was modified and uh, through the National Defense Authorization Act uh, especially in 2013, uh, so that what they've done is they've allowed these materials that are produced by the State Department and the Broadcasting Board of Governors uh, to be available within the United States. Well, that's very troubling, because what that means is that gives them the freedom to lie, and so you see in so many movies that you watch, if you follow the credits at the end, where they're thanking people. I mean, they're thanking like intelligence organizations and and uh, military intelligence, all these different uh, groups that that were not so directly involved, although they they did covertly uh, seek to influence the populace through what was called the Operation Mockingbird back in the 50s, now it's free game. And so there you have the CIA giving uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon uh, $600 million, and then he goes and turns around and buys the Washington Post, which is essentially an institution in the United States, and turning into a propaganda journal. And uh, it's just, it, it's become almost entirely unhinged. And so consequently, uh, the average individual that has been fed on these uh, meals for so long, coming from the media and trusting uh, at least somewhat uh, what they're getting, now it's, I mean, you look at it, you can't believe what they're saying. So more and more people are turning to alternative sources such as American intelligence media and other uh, citizen journalists to be able to try and do their own research and really understand.
And to be perfectly frank, in the networks and all of that, they are utilizing various crowd control technologies and so forth. So if you watch too much of that stuff, you'll end up stepping in line even though you don't want to. Yes, I, I feel that every time I watch the news, even for more than a few minutes. I want to read one more sentence out of this to show you that who we are and the people who are part of what we sometimes call the Second American Revolution, in other words, starting from 1913 with the founding of the Federal Reserve and the central banking system, there's been just an erosion of the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And so we believe that we are the first resistance, the resistance to the overthrow of America that was going on. But once Trump was elected, we believe that that's the turning point, and we now have a, a, a chance. And they call that populism. And I don't know if Trump looked at this document, but he absolutely fulfilled it and all of its prophecies to the T. And so let me just read a definition. It's not really a definition. This is what they call populism. And this is who James Clapper and John Brennan and all of the 17 agencies that were on the side of Hillary Clinton, as she said, by the way, she didn't have a clearance enough to know that all 17 agencies said the Russians had hacked the DNC. And at that point, they hadn't. So the whole mythology is simply the fact that she could stand up and say, well, of course, the entire institutionalized left is on my side. <laughs> That's all she was really saying, because we now know only three agencies were involved and a fourth one was overseeing it. But populism to them is what we would call the resistance. It is the second American revolution. It is identity politics, where one individual can create outcomes that are greater in their own words, uh, than uh, creating administrative policies. One individual can change the world. So we encourage every person to do all that they can to make sure that, as an American, your freedoms are preserved. And that isn't something you do by resting on your laurels or by simply sitting back and doing nothing. Let me give you a definition of who I would think that I would be proud as a... Uh, as a member of the Second American Revolution to say that I was a populist. In this document, it says, populism is emerging in the West, characterized by a suspicion and hostility towards elites, mainstream politics, and established institutions. It reflects rejection of the economic effects of globalization and frustration with the responses of political and economic elites to the public's concerns. Yes, they should be afraid of anyone that they define as a populist, if that is their definition, because basically what that's saying is we have awakened and we're not going back to sleep. You can no longer pull the wool over our eyes. We see what it is that you're trying to do. You would like to make America simply a branch of the United Nations that is part of a globalized economy. And we are the arm of the United Nations that is the military enforcing arm as well as the largest economic donor. I like what Trump did. He immediately said, we're going to give only half as much to the United Nations. And I like it even better if the next year he gives nothing, because I can't think of a single thing they've ever done. This centralization, as you point out, which does lead to fascism, because when you centralize, it's in the hands of a very few people, and power corrupts, total power corrupts totally. We see that in history over and over again. We shouldn't be surprised by that. So if we really want to put all that power in the United Nations to literally come into America and remove our arms, according to the Obama-signed Small Arms Treaty 
of the United Nations, which is illegal and has not been put into place because we have a constitution and we have a Bill of Rights, and it has yet to be completely violated at this point. But what I'm saying is, you good nationalists out there, you good populists, you good identity politicians, and you good NGO busters, you are what they are afraid of. And they're afraid of every single one of you because a single person with liberty and a true conscience can undo the machinations of all of these political and military and corporate interests. So, John, can you close us out today with some uh, closing uh, remarks uh, about your title here, Liberty and Conscience versus Institutional Left? Yeah, I think that uh, the real key uh, to uh, being able to uh, take up this this liberty, this freedom, is in the realm of thinking, because that's the realm in which one can truly be free. But the the problem is is that the the types of uh, institutions that have been created for uh, education as it developed out of the Prussian model and was further developed through the efforts of the Carnegie Foundation and the Ford Foundation and all of these uh, groups that wish to bring us into a collective. Uh, this modality, which again is being further brought forward as Agenda 21 in uh, various initiatives coming out of the UN, that is the thing that is going against the individual human being. So you say, well, what is it that's that's missing from this whole modality of collectivist education model? You'd have to say, they teach you what to think. They do not teach you how to think. And so if you go back to the person I referenced in the very beginning of this, uh, John Taylor Gatto, who was uh, teacher of the Year in New York City and Teacher of the Year in the state of New York, who's done a considerable uh, number of uh, interviews that are available on YouTube. But the one on themes of lead private school curriculum, he gives you 14 different uh, attributes of the elite private schools that the people that run everything, the type of training they go through that teaches them how to think. And Donald Trump has been through the private school system. And so he does have a background in that form of education, but he does not approach it as an elitist. As he says, uh, let our motto be uh, for the American people, it's it's has to do with uh, Americanism, not globalism shall be our credo. Uh, 